Murder in the North, Episode 9, Death on Ward 26. Patients at Malmo East Hospital in Sweden are dying in large numbers. Within the space of three months, Ward 26 registers almost 30 unexplained deaths. The staff suspect there may be a virus doing the rounds. The dead have a strange red rash around their mouths. The autopsies reveal signs of a throat infection, but nobody really knows what's going on until the murderer is caught red-handed. The year is 1978, and Sweden's most prolific serial killer is running amok at the hospital in Malmö. In no time at all, he has claimed dozens of victims. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Anna Nilica and Barbara Gearholf Nilholm, and told by me, Jenna Sharp. It's the summer of 2016, and the whole of Denmark is in shock. The news is full of reports about Christina Eistrup Hansen, a young nurse who has been found guilty of three counts of murder and one count of attempted murder at New Corbing Felster Hospital. She's initially sentenced to life imprisonment, but on appeal, this is commuted to 12 years in prison for four counts of attempted murder. This makes Christina Eistrup Hansen part of a statistic a member of the group of so-called medical serial killers, healthcare professionals who murder their patients, often through fatal injections. Staff at New Corbing Felster Hospital speak of the Christina shift. It looks as if there's always something dramatic going on when Christina is on duty. There have been multiple cardiac arrests and deaths, and Christina is always the first on the scene when a patient needs resuscitating in A&E. It later transpires that Christina has been giving her patients a mixture of morphine, diazepam, and calcium chloride via their drips. The case of Christina Eistrup Hansen shocks the Danish public and ignites a debate on how such cases can be avoided in the future. How can healthcare professionals be prevented from killing the very people they're meant to be protecting? She's not the first serial killer on the loose in a Scandinavian hospital. There's also a case from 1978. It's that of 18-year-old Anders Hansen. Malmo East Hospital 
it says in large letters above the entrance. The speed limit in the street that leads to the hospital is 20 miles per hour, and everybody stays within that limit, except, of course, the ambulances responding to emergencies, of course. In the winter of 1978, the Swedish government is debating the issue of assisted suicide. That same winter, which is an extremely cold one, lots of elderly people are admitted to hospital. But earlier in the year, in autumn, the weather is still mild in the southern Swedish city of Malmö. 18-year-old Anders Hansen walks into the hospital, ready to start his first day in his new nursing job. He's assigned to Ward 26. It's a unit for the long-term care of elderly patients with dementia. But with the arrival of Anders, quite a few of them will find their stay considerably curtailed. He may be young, but he already has a fair amount of experience as a nurse. His CV lists six months on a similar ward at the hospital in Varnum, on the outskirts of Malmö. And in the summer, he worked on the nursing ward at the city's Segervans Garden Hospital, where he's been an intern on a previous occasion. None of his colleagues at these places were particularly enthusiastic about him. And as his manager at Segervans Garden described him as passive and even declined to write him a reference. Anders enjoys the company of older people. As a baby, he was given up for adoption, and during an otherwise rather lonely childhood, both his grandmothers were always there for him. Anders is not considered to be very bright, but somehow or other, being with older people suits him. The dim and lonely lad has found something he's good at and likes doing. After his induction at Malmo Ostra Hospital, he's raring to go. He starts his first shift on the ward on the 5th of October, and a few days later, he has his baptism of fire. One of the patients is experiencing acute respiratory distress after getting water or saliva in his windpipe. Anders purposely walks out of the room to fetch help. A nurse subsequently stabilizes the man, and Anders is complimented by his colleagues. A few days later, the exact same thing happens to another patient. Anders is there again. He raises the alarm and calls for assistance. The patient survives. Three weeks later, the following happens. Former engineer Carl Eric, who's blind and 66 years old, is admitted to hospital with a tropical disease. After a few weeks on the nursing ward, his condition improves and he'll be going home soon to continue his recovery there. But a few days before he's discharged, Anders takes a glass of fruit juice to his room. Carl Eric drinks it, not knowing that Anders has mixed the juice with a detergent. Anders eagerly awaits the outcome, but nothing happens to the blind patient. Later, during his trial, Anders admits to being disappointed that nothing happened when Carl Eric drank the juice. 
He'd carefully read the label on the cleaning product to make that sure that it was toxic and that ingestion could be fatal. He thought he was about to witness his first death. The detergent in question is Gevisol, which was widely used in hospitals at the time. It's a disinfectant with strong antibacterial qualities, and it also contains alcohol, sodium, chloride, and the highly toxic phenyl. Less than a gram can be lethal. The following days, Anders serves his patient a second dangerous cocktail, with more detergent this time. The reaction isn't long in coming. Carl Eric starts coughing violently, struggles to breathe, and dies a few hours later. The detergent causes chemical burns in the throat, increased mucus production, and apnea. If the dose is high enough, it can lead to a cruel and painful death. The medical term for this is phenyl poisoning. Carl Eric's sudden death is followed by a few turbulent weeks on Ward 26. Two patients die with the same symptoms. Two more survive, but require treatment for a strange rash around their mouths and in their throats. Injuries in and around the mouth are not uncommon in the chronically ill patients on this ward. Although several of the deceased have the same kind of rashes that look a lot like burns, the doctors aren't overly concerned at this stage. But more and more patients are dying. The unusual symptoms are referred to as the sickness of 26. One moment patients are alert and talking, the next they're in excruciating pain and foaming at the mouth. The patients suffer terribly when they die. They choke on their own saliva. We don't know if it's an epidemic or if someone's trying to poison them, says Crystal Sofgren, one of the nurses. Anders carries on working undaunted, although his colleagues aren't exactly fond of him. He's seen as difficult to work with, and one of his colleagues even described him as incompetent and stupid. Anders is only given simple tasks to do, such as washing up or picking up and delivering supplies. He is not supposed to work directly with patients. That's why nobody suspects that Anders might have something to do with the deaths on Ward 26. By the time he's been on the ward for six weeks, five patients have died of the same curious symptoms. In late October 1978, Nurse Crystal Sofgren walks into the room of 74-year-old Iris, who tells her that a man has poured an acidic liquid into her mouth. Shocked to hear this, Crystal asks her what the man looked like. The patient goes on to describe a young, fairly short man with glasses. The only male on duty at that time is Anders. A worried Crystal informs the senior consultant of what Iris has just told her. But the senior consultant doesn't take the story seriously. There's a serious staff shortage. Four full-time positions are unfilled, and many of the nurses don't have the right qualifications. 
Ward 26 is a nightmare, and few stick around for long. An internal power struggle among the managers and a chronic shortage of staff are the order of the day on the ward. Senior consultant John Savonius is at loggerheads with the hospital director, Ada Holup, and accuses her of working for the Russian Secret Service. It wouldn't surprise him if the KGB were behind the high number of deaths. The work is hard, the patients are all gravely ill, and the poor working conditions leads to cliques, bullying and gossip. Anders is aware that he's not very popular on the ward, he always spends his breaks by himself. As well as being described as stupid and incompetent by one colleague, the head nurse tries to have him transferred to another ward. But because he's on a fixed-term contract, for six months to be precise, no other ward wants him. The head nurse is advised to just wait and let the contract expire. Following lengthy discussion, Sven Wolther is appointed as the new departmental manager of wards 25 and 26. The student is barely 24 and has three more years of medical school to go before he qualifies as a doctor. Sven is mystified by the unusual symptoms of the deceased. He asks a few more experienced doctors for help. The autopsies indicate that all patients had some kind of throat or respiratory infection, a common cause of death among older, chronically ill people. Meanwhile, the deaths are a frequent topic of conversation between Nurse Crystal and her colleagues. By January 1979, more than 20 patients have died. Crystal makes another attempt at alerting her managers to the high number of patients dying with a rash around the mouth. She's told in no uncertain terms to stop being hysterical. On the same day that Crystal is reprimanded by her superiors, Anders sneaks into Iris's room and gives her an extra strong cocktail of fruit juice and gevisol. She dies the next day. The day after that, another patient passes away, a man named Johan. Anders is now trying to kill one patient a day. He's not caught out until victim number 28. It's 94-year-old Elsa who puts an end to Anders's deadly career. On the 12th of January, he administers the toxic mixture of juice and detergent to her. She spits it out and screams. What are you giving me? I don't want it. It burns. A nurse hears her screaming and rushes into the room. There, he finds Anders, who's standing in a corner with a fearful expression on his face. He keeps saying, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Nonetheless, the senior consultant on duty is called in to examine Elsa. The first thing the doctor notices is that the 94-year-old woman's breath smells of detergent. She asks all the staff present to help her by first smelling Elsa's breath and then the bottle of detergent. There's no doubt about it. Anders gave Elsa 
Gevisel. The senior consultant calls the police, and on Saturday the 13th of January, Sweden wakes up to headlines about the most prolific serial killer in the country's history. The only photo ever taken of Anders Hansen shows him from the back as he walks towards a building escorted by plainclothes police officers. Anders has medium-length dark blonde hair and he's wearing a leather jacket, jeans with rolled-up legs and dark boots. He's dressed head-to-toe in the fashion of the day. The plainclothes officer beside him is Sven Palmquist, the man leading the police interviews with Anders. Anders denies harming the patients on Ward 26. But over time, the interrogators manage to build a relationship of trust with him. Eventually, Anders breaks and starts talking about his first victim, blind 66-year-old Carl Eric. Anders tells them he thought Carl Eric looked sad, that he felt sorry for him because Carl Eric was blind. Anders talks about feeling sorry for all those elderly people because they were ill and their lives no longer worth living. He wanted to put an end to their suffering and help them find peace. Former colleague Crystal Sofgren doesn't buy this explanation. When she's interviewed by police, she maintains that Anders isn't capable of such deep thought. I'm convinced that he got a kick out of it. He was so happy every time he received a compliment when he'd found a patient who was coughing and spluttering, Crystal says. He'd have this pleased and self-satisfied smile on his face. During questioning, Anders admits that in the short space of three months... He killed 27 patients on the ward. He also tried, but failed, to murder a further 15. When asked if he'd have carried on killing had he not been caught, Anders answers with a resounding, yes. But how many patients did Anders actually kill? The investigation draws on multiple autopsies to establish who died of phenyl poisoning and who died of other causes. In June 1979, the public prosecutor decides to charge Anders with 11 counts of murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. But before the trial gets underway, it's established that Anders is not deemed to be of sane mind. So, he is unlikely to receive a prison sentence. His psychiatric report reads as follows. This outwardly exemplary young man, robotic, obedient, and of low intelligence, he thinks neither poorly or fondly of the victims, is incapable of taking responsibility for his own actions, must be considered dangerous. The case is tried in court in Malmo. Among those giving testimony is a psychology professor who has spoken at length with the now 19-year-old Anders, to assess whether he can be held accountable for his actions. I've worked with mentally ill people for 40 years, yet these conversations shocked me, the professor declares under oath. Here is a person who's wholly lacking in normal emotional responses. 
He's incapable of empathizing with the suffering that the patients endured after drinking the poison. He doesn't understand that he's done anything wrong. On the 28th of August, 1979, Anders is sentenced to detention in a closed psychiatric institution in the Swedish town of Lund. He spends 14 years there, until his release in 1993. The slim young man in jeans has turned into a stocky, balding man. That's how he appears in a photo published in Swedish newspaper Aftenbladet in 2005. By then, he's been free for 12 years. He works in a factory and is a law-abiding citizen. He has nothing to say about the case. I've put it behind me and never think about it, he says. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>